BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. Welcome to the Diversity Remix, busting the echo chambers of culture, politics, and business. I'm Charlie Echeverry. And I'm Jesus Chavez. This week on TDR, education or indoctrination? In today's deep dive, we look at a number of issues impacting the conversation around education in the country, from critical race theory to parents' role in the curriculum. And in our Courage or Cringe segment, Travis Scott Tragedy, State Farm Sticks with Aaron Rodgers, and MIT alums blast their alma mater. Should a hip-hop star rightly face consequences for his role in the death of fans at his show? Or is cancel culture taking an artist's livelihood over a tragic accident? Is a major insurance company supporting their spokesperson's freedom of choice? Or are they looking the other way on dishonesty to avoid upsetting conservative customers? And finally, did a pair of alumni from a prestigious university rightly slam that administration's wokeness in a recent letter? Or is their action evidence of the rise of a counter-cancel culture movement? This and more this week on TDR. I made the mistake of watching Marvel's Eternals this weekend. Oh, really? <laughs> uh, you don't like it? I haven't seen it yet. So I can't I can't opine yet on it, but it is, is not getting good uh, reviews. No, it's getting devastatingly bad reviews. Is what you mean? Is it? Are are they warranted? Oh, entirely so. I mean, really? It, it Why? Was, I don't think I read a single review about the reviews. It was uh, it was an exercise in endurance, is what it was. It was nearly three hours long. Okay, and which is fine for a Gandhi bioepic, but not necessarily for a super slow moving. Uh, event, you know, action style superhero film. I mean, it they're was all super long. All the Avengers movies are super long. That's because they're exciting, and there's like oh, God, fight God, sequences and things. This was, I mean, the, the it's not even so much a mistake, but the reason why this was so terrible is also uh-huh. the reason why uh, there's such quality people involved with it. So it's a, it's an irony in a way. The director is a woman named Chloe Zhao, who was the director mm-hmm. of Nomadland. Mm-hmm. Which was a great movie. Have you seen right. Nomadland yet? Uh, I have. I've seen. I haven't seen the full movie. The one time I, I was watching it, I didn't unfortunately get a chance to finish it, and I just never went back to it. And it's see great. It. It's this very cinematic, yeah. beautiful yeah, series no, was, of was, stringing. Her, yeah, a lot. These amazing conversations. These extraordinary landscapes, like sure. atmospherics. Yeah, 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 yeah. Great, authentic conversations with people that are like the everyday people that people ignore and don't pay attention to. Mm-hmm. 
in that milieu, in that world, she's probably, and she is, she won an Academy Award for it. She's extraordinary. Now imagine applying that, though, to a superhero movie. So you have these sleepy scenes of dialogue. Like, you know the scene in the, in the superhero movie where the protagonist sits by the tree and they reflect about like when they were young and the character that they kind of have a love interest with walks up to them and, and they have this like two minute scene, right? Mm-hmm. That happens in a lot of movies. Now imagine 20 of those scenes. And I don't mean sporadic. I mean back to back. Sleepy scene to sleepy scene to sleepy scene to sleepy scene. There is... I mean, it's it's extraordinary. I mean, right. at one point, there was giggling in my theater. There was people like laughing out loud going, I cannot believe this is actually happening. I saw people walk out of the movie. No. Which I, walk out? That's a, that takes a lot. Dude, I'm telling you. Not just, not, just, not just a couple. I'm talking about several groups of people leaving uh-huh. the movie. And at one point, it became like that, you know, you're in third grade and you're trying not to laugh. Like, you know, your friends got you and there's something in your head and you just you're like trying to hold in the laughter uh-huh. about how how ridiculous the the kind of pace of this movie was. I mean, it was excruciating. OK, the, the last movie that I've seen that is like the, close to what you're describing uh, was Blade, Blade, whatever it was, Blade to the, the last um, is not Blade Runner, Blade Runner, whatever it is. Yeah. Right. The one with um, Gosling guy. Yeah, Ryan Gosling. Ryan Gosling. It was terrible. Super boring. Right. I was bored out of my mind on that movie. Okay, so multiply that, you know, add that the tenth power, and then that's this. <laughs> so and that's that, what it is. Okay. But 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 that was only part of it. The other part okay. of it was the cinematography was beautiful, but the lighting. So apparently uh Chloe Chloe Zhao loves this. Um actually our friend uh our friend um Dave Kang. Uh-huh speaks about this all the time, about this sort of magic hour, the golden hour, the, mm. the hour right before sunrise or the hour right after, yeah. right before sunset. Dawn or dusk, like, yeah, yeah. yeah, like that, that glow. So the entire movie is in that thing, and you're constantly looking to make out what's happening. <laughs> so it's slow, boring, dark. <laughs> what is happening? <laughs> it, I mean, it's, it's extraordinary. I, I cannot uh, believe that, that, is... that this actually happened. $200 million to put this thing together. And on one level, like I said, I, I, I'm not saying that uh, Chloe uh, Zhao can't direct an action. Good for her that she got the step. Sure. That's awesome. That's awesome. But yeah. man, is she just not the right? I mean, either that, not, not the right approach or not the right person to do this right. because I just walked out of there like upset. Like you walk out upset. You know what I mean? It's like I wanted That's to see something so approaching funny. action. You know what I mean? Right, right. <laughs> and then there's just plot holes that and plot problems that make no sense. One yeah. of the premises. Well, either they make no sense or they're genius. One of the two, okay? Right, right. Let me give you just uh-huh. one and then we can I'm move gonna on. I'm going to go with genius. Okay, but go well, ahead. <laughs> the, the, these Eternals are created by this demigod or deity or whatever it is, okay? Uh-huh. Who is Who looks like a giant Lego, is basically like a Lego structure and literally floating in outer space. And the people are really small when they go talk to it. They're like teleported to it. So that's kind of weird. But right. they're okay. crea- the Eternals are created by this thing. As a way to protect human civilization, yada, yada, yada. I saw that in the trailer. Okay. But the Eternals, at least one of them, has a disability, right? And so my son asked me the question, if these guys are created, right, they're created by this like all-knowing being, and they're created to be these like amazing eternal creatures, why build them with a disability? Like one of them is deaf, 
and she signed, she uses sign language. I don't know sign language, so I don't know if she's using American sign language. Even that's a question. Like, wait a minute. So, like, she's not just deaf, but she's American deaf somehow because she's using that language, right? Well, but in the movies, these characters always speak in English. So that's, I mean, the reality. Work with me, Jesus. Okay, Work with yeah, me. So yeah. anyway, but <clears throat> here's the but gene- I guess the, the question is, like, is disability a a, uh, a hindrance or a power for them, right? Well, well that's Does it a- give them more empathy? Maybe, maybe that's the reason to do it. There's a right? thousand and one ways to explain to, to it. To connect better with human for sure, race. For sure. When you have limitations in, in how you're built. And therein lies the potential genius. If you're saying, I'm hey, you genius. know what? I'm going with genius. That, that, that this all-knowing deity would purposely uh, choose to create these people with disabilities in order to get to more empathy, et cetera. Right. Super genius. So it was trying to make theological points. I would say that's a stretch if you watch the whole movie. But let's say for a second that it, that it is. Um, maybe that's a redeeming characteristic. But other than that, man, holy smokes was this thing bad. Uh, I mean, really bad. You're making me think that should just wait till it comes out on, on Disney+. Plus. No, it's even worse because you'll never watch it. You won't sit still. Like, if you get a chance to move up and go get a sandwich or, like, I'm the worst be on your that. phone. No, dude. If you watch it at home, you'd never see the end of it. You'd we, never we get through it. We talked about this, Charlie. I am the worst at watching anything. I cannot focus on watching one thing. No, I mean, but if you're at the theater, don't you feel like the – you're, you're, you you're forced. Yeah, that's yeah, what yeah, I mean. Yeah, you're yeah, kind of yeah, compelled, yeah, right? But if you're yeah. at home and you get a chance to put oh, it yeah, on yeah. Netflix, dude, nobody's get. If this was a 10-part series on Netflix, that would be still hard because every episode would be like, right. wait a minute. We're having another deep conversation by the lake? Like, how many deep conversations by the lake can we have? <laughs> I mean, it's – Dude, you have to go see it uh, just to check my math on it. That is pretty funny. Yeah, you know, that's I, what I did this weekend. I think that is hilarious. Among other things. Wow. Okay. Yep. Um, I did not do that, so that's, you know. Yeah. So um, we didn't talk about this, but mm-hmm. um, it sort of relates to what we want to talk about with education, and that is the new governor-elect of Virginia. Yeah. Because a lot of that race out there seems to have hinged on at least tangential or relatedly the question of, of uh, education. Yeah. I know that we want to talk about education broadly, but it seems well, to I me think that's the yeah. part of it though. You know, it, it seemed at least that the way that this is being framed in media is one of the topics that um, is uh, Glenn Youngkin, right? Who yeah. Mm-hmm. Glenn Youngkin who beat it. Uh, Democrat Terry McAuliffe. McAuliffe. That's right. Um, is was the issue around education and the role that the, really the parents have in deciding mm-hmm. or influencing what type of education the kids can have. Um, so that's been, I mean, it's been so interesting looking at this as this year has progressed, how that has become a really, really hot topic. And there's everything from, of course, critical race theory. There is uh, issues on COVID and COVID mandates and COVID protocols for how kids should be educated masking has been a massive thing. I mean, there's been so many reports of parents getting on full-on brawls in these um, uh, education hearings, right? Uh, where uh, they're, they're, like, their they're city boards are sitting together trying, you know, talking about policy, and you have these parents just completely duking it out. It, it, I think, you know, even when we talked about how to, like, frame this, you know, calling the next political frontier children's education is probably not a bad way to think about it. Yeah. Um, What's your starting point for the conversation, though? Because to me, it's... I think, yeah. I mean, I think there is this... um, When we talk about what are the cultural war issues, I think education is now at the forefront of the cultural war issue. Mm -hmm. I think for a whole set set of reasons. You know, I I was thinking about... I think I shared it with you. One of the ways that I think about it is that I think when, with with all movements, there's always a counter movement that happens. Sure, right? People that react to and um, 
look to find ways to push back on the ties that they think maybe thinking are encroaching on their ability to sort of have normalcy in the way that they want to have it, right? So I haven't really heard this this as a point of view. Maybe people have shared it, but I haven't heard it. Is that I wonder how much the current culture war or focus on education, specifically around the issue of critical race theory, is maybe the one that I just pick on one, has to do with people directly responding to, reacting to all of the push, all of the emphasis that started with summer of 2020 mm-hmm. uh, of people in general reacting to um, obviously the death of George Floyd and and also these commitments that you kind of had across the board, these sweeping commitments, almost, almost felt like sweeping reform and trying to take a new, more proactive look at race relations in this country that impacted everything from employment, policy, uh, government, education. And I wonder how much of that this is now a the counter reaction, the counter movement, pushing back on that. I think there's Being something like to that. It's gone too far, or people that frankly feel threatened in their views and their ways mm-hmm. that don't want that to be sort of brought forth. I think there's a number of things that are happening simultaneously, but I do think that it's a counter movement. I don't know if the counter movement is is on a percentage basis more about the speed at which things seem to be moving that naturally people have a tendency to want to say like, hey, we're moving too fast. And like people say we're moving too fast about a lot of things, even things that are objectively good, they still think like, I don't want to get there that fast, right? Mm -hmm. So there was a sense that like, oh, this is happening. It's on, right? Defund the police. Let's elect new people. Just like kind of burn the system to the ground. Ironically to me, there seemed to be a lot of that around the election of Donald Trump too. It was like, oh, it's over. Like, we got to burn this thing to the ground. We got to throw a wrench into the works. Like, the po- the the system is screwed up, so we're gonna blow it up. Like, there there was a sense of that, mm-hmm. and I think average people, everyday people who like are going to work and raising their families, when things move that quickly, there's a natural reluctance or hesitation to it. I think the other side of the argument is, what is it that is actually moving fast? And then thirdly. Who has the responsibility or the right in the case of education to speak on either the speed or the content of the way things are moving? Sure. And I think in those three things is the bulk of what we're actually dealing with today. Yeah, I could I could see that. And um, yeah, cause I think the the focus there has been this this whiplash effect that people have felt to your point that too many things are moving too quickly. Um, and, and frankly, I mean, this is where politicians that definitely have anchored on these, these themes, right. Um, that are become easier to talk about that, to get people riled up and angry. We know we talked about it in the context of Facebook, uh, how meta, well they meta, understand. Meta, meta, um, meta, please. Well, Facebook and the platform, not <laughs> no, Facebook, no, no, not no, the no, company, no, no. right. I'm just messing with them. Uh, in, in terms of what gets the most reaction, well, typically things that make you upset get the most reaction. Mm-hmm. And right now the, 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 the themes that will come up to me really quickly if, if, I, if I think about the issues on the conservative side of the equation, it would mm-hmm. be critical race theory would mm-hmm. be one. Maybe not one. Maybe two at this one. Cancel culture probably one. Mm-hmm. And then critical race theory would be a second, a very close second. And those feel like, especially what happened in Virginia, like I was like better platforms people to, to run on that are completely divorced from actual reality of what's happening in the ground. Right. One of the things that, you know, in reading the situation in Virginia was that apparently critical race theory is not really taught in Virginia, but it doesn't really matter. And I think the mistake that the Democratic uh, uh, candidate, right, uh, for for governor, 
made is that he made at some point some comment that parents don't really have the right to decide. Oh, yeah. And that's a terrible thing to say because no matter yeah. how, what you meant by that. And I think I, if I give him full credit, full benefit of that, I think I know what he means. Yeah. Because you also can have in a class of 20, 20 different curriculums. Right. Which I understand or the that. mom coming to the parent teacher meeting and saying, "I'd like for you to change your math book." Like, right, it's like not you scalable. Have, you can't have that. But saying that is just no matter how you try to. There's this a that's low percentage. You know, really situation. hard to unwind that one. It's it's really really interesting. And and I think part of the the thing that I think about is what are you know, especially on this issue of of critical race theory. If you if you if you step aside from what actually is like real critical race theory as it relates to the college level philosophy associated with how race has impacted uh, this country and continues to impact this country. I, I still have a hard time understanding what are people reacting so aggressively against mm-hmm. at a younger age, right? So I can, I can give you, yeah, a, maybe, maybe hope you, let me, let me give you, that, well, yeah. let me give you an example. And this actually comes from a Newsweek article that I read mm-hmm. written by a guy named Charles Love, who happens to be black. I guess he's a host of a podcast called the Charles Love Show. Not one for creativity, apparently, but the Charles Love Show. So, um, and he, what he says is that he actually breaks down, you know, this idea of CRT as, as a black person, about not being um, simply about focusing on a race-focused curricula. He says that that would be significantly less objectionable. But what he says is, and, and I'm quoting here, he says what he objects to is what feels like to him propaganda openly stating that races are different and whiteness is bad. Right. He gives us an example, the New York City Teachers Union um, openly promoting the 13 guiding principles of the back of the Black Lives Matter organization, um, he, which include reapportioning city and state funds to black communities, being queer and trans affirming. He, he cites the teaching of the 1619 Project. He, see, he cites this idea of um, anti-black racism being in the DNA of the country. And saying that everything or most things are linked directly to slavery, and he, his perspective as a, as a black person is that that's not the way that he would want to raise his kids, right? Mm-hmm. So, so he gives that example of CRT. But here's – even before you respond to that, though, mm-hmm. this is where I'm legitimately, honestly, sincerely confused because mm-hmm. I have heard – and I mentioned it to you the other day, but I didn't have the citation for it. Now I do. Mm-hmm. I've heard people on the left say that CRT is actually not real, period. Not that it doesn't exist in the school that it isn't real. Nicole Wallace, who's an MSNBC anchor, literally, I'm looking at her quote, and and what she says is that, and of course I just lost it, Mm -hmm. she basically says talking about CRT is like talking about ghosts. It doesn't exist. Like that's what she's literally saying. So there seems to be this one movement that says CRT isn't real, another movement that says it's real and it's everywhere, neither of which is really true. It seems like it does exist, but it exists in certain contexts, like what you said, the collegiate one. And then to the degree that it exists in the lower levels, maybe it's particular things that people are responding to, right? Right, right, right. And I think there is – that's that's sort of the crux of the issue, right, Um, as we think about children's education because – if someone wants to frame it that way to me that says, do we should we be educating kids where their entire reason for being for this country and everything how we operate is entirely based on race? Um, I don't know if I would agree with that being the, the way that we should be thinking about helping kids like, understand the complexity of this country and even if the complexity of its history. But to then turn around and say that race hasn't been playing, hasn't played a major role of, of sure. where we are. And how this country has become what it is is also just not right. 
And that's the part that I, I guess when I think about it, and I think a lot about it personally in, in talking to my daughter, is that even when speaking with a nine-year-old, you can have nuanced conversations. This whole idea that kids are unable to understand something that is slightly nuanced, I don't understand that as a philosophy for how to teach children. I agree with that. You know, that you can have a great conversation. Help, you know, kids, help kid, kid explain, like, listen, there is actually two sides to this conversation. And complicated, and it's all not all great. You know, I've shared this with you before that I talk a lot to my daughter about the history of of Mexico and and what it's you know what that culture is and how it represents, and the fact that there was this really terrible thing that had happened that then led to this beautiful culture, which is what Mexicans are today. This combination of uh, indigenous people, there were combination between Aztecs and other other indigenous groups, and people that were from Spain and Spanish. Right, and we talk about the things that were terrible, what happened, but also the fact that like, our language, the religion, a lot of our culture does come from that. Mm -hmm. So while we can sit here and point to we wish it would have been differently, we could also you could also kind of look at the whole thing, and understand like it is complicated, but yes, something that is a beautiful culture came out of that. Yeah, even if the history is not great. Do you, is it and your, I think that's mm -hmm. the part where where I, I I feel I feel there's too many people who are so at this point and maybe it goes back to that counter reaction that whiplash moment who don't who seem to want to shelter their kids from having any kind of nuanced mm -hmm. conversation. And I think that there, of like, course I do, and I and I would disagree with those people. And I think that what you just said about there being multiple sides to an issue, nuanced conversations, even with nine year olds is a perfectly rational, reasonable thing to say in the way that I would I would hope that I've raised my kids. I wonder, though, and this is a question for you, do you think that most, let's look at the conservative side of the equation. Mm -hmm. Do you think most of the resistance from them is about nuance and multiple points of view? Or do you think their objection is about things being presented in a binary fashion as the reality? In other words, you know, going back to this 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 guy, Charles Love, he says schools are focusing on white privilege and asking white students to identify as oppressors. The, the, to his, I'm not saying he's right. I'm just saying it's his right. point of view. If he's right, then am I introducing the, 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 the context that you might belong to a culture that has been oppressive? Or am I suggesting right, you right. are an oppressor? Like, yeah, one yeah, of yeah. them is not nuanced. Well, one of them is not nuanced. And I think the problem is that the way people describe these things are all caricatures of the of the, of the reality, right? They're, they're sort of the extreme versions. Because I, I think to your point you just made earlier, for those that say that critical race, critical race theory or anything associated with critical race theory beyond the theory itself doesn't exist at all, it's also probably not true, right? Like, look, I was listening to a podcast uh, series the other day from Gimlet called Uncivil. Have you heard of this? No. It's really it's a really interesting podcast, right? Mm -hmm. I'll, I'll read you the really quick description of it, right? Yep. Which is to say, we ransack the official version of the Civil War and take on the history you grew up with. We bring you until stories about covert, op covert operations, corruption, resistance, mutiny, counterfeiting, right? And it kind of goes on from there. Mm -hmm. Now, when you when you hear the the episodes of this podcast. I think immediately, if someone listens to this, are they going to frame this as, oh, this is all critical race theory? This is now indoctrination, right? So as an example, one of the episodes they talked about was this specific slave that ran away from its, you know, its master and its family and basically spent her entire life always kind of watching her back, trying to go, you know, get, get away from, from her master, now wanted to come back. It turns out that her master was uh, George Washington. Mm. And it talks about the fact that not only that George Washington had slaves, but when they moved to Pennsylvania, which I guess initially that's where the capital was, um, 
there was a law there that after six months of being there, those that were slaves then had the right to then be able to re regain their freedom. So one of the things that apparently he did is that he would basically ship out his slaves out of the state to make sure that no one was there at any one given moment for more than six months. Mm -hmm. Now, they talk about the letters and where he talks about this and all this. And I haven't gone and fact-checked this, but this thing did win a Peabody. So I'm guessing it's probably a true story. Like, is that really critical It probably race? is true. Is that critical race theory? Is that indoctrination? Or is that simply giving you a perspective? And I've never heard that story. Like, oh, that's actually yeah, super interesting, sure. right? But I bet, like, we're at a point now where if someone says that in a classroom, the the headline is going to come from that. I mean, there's going to be some parent at a at a, at a school board sure. saying, see, you're trying to indoctrinate our children to hate I'm America. I'm sure that there would be. But that's not hating America. That's also recognizing the yeah. nuance and, the fr frankly, the complexity about this. There's also about other stories about this great, great story about these these two women, one of which was a plantation owner that had slave. When her husband died, she decided that she was actually – she didn't want to have slaves anymore, right? And she changed her mind and and, and ended up, like, really taking a liking to one of, the, one of the women that worked for her, sent her to school, got her educated, had her go like, – had her travel – uh, I forgot where she sent it to. When she brought her, she, when she brought her back. She tried. She was trying to send her in first class. They wouldn't let her. But so someone that she was really, really close with. Well, this woman ended up having like a spy ring to help Union uh, soldiers to try to bring down the Confederates. And because of where she lived, she lived, I guess, in the same town where the wife or I guess the the, the family of the the president of the Confederacy. I forget now, blanking the number right now of his name. Mm -hmm. They were looking for a maid. She she basically like talked to her friend to go in as a spy into the basically the first house. Sure. And there's a great story about them getting information out of the Confederacy group based on this ex-slave and this ex-owner of slaves, mm -hmm. these two women that play this critical role. Once again, to me, is that critical race theory? Is that indoctrination? It's actually a well, really beautiful story in my mind sure. and complex story that both puts both the, the slave person and slave owner in a very different light that we tend to not talk about. See what I'm saying? Like, uh, yeah. like that's and I wouldn't classify it. I mean, to get to the to the actual question about is this CRT, I would say no, because CRT, at least as I understand it, seems to be about really analyzing systems that exist mm -hmm. today that have been built up through a history of racism and have in them things that are part of them, part of their their very construction that put groups at a disadvantage. So like most of the focus on CRT seems to me to be about systemic uh, uh, racism but, that, but that is, think, that's prevailing everywhere. Yeah, I agree with you. Don't you think these, though, would definitely fall into the category of indoctrination, which is the other version that people think about uh, critical race theory? Because it's not just the mm -hmm. race theory piece that people have an issue with. Yeah, it would it's be... It's that you're it, indoctrinating your kids to either have some a... Some people may say that. ...a negative view of, of America sure. or, or to hate America, which is the way people tend to phrase Some it. people might say that, but I would say that they'd be standing on pretty shaky ground if they're trying to claim that that's a, an, a, an issue of indoctrination. What would be an issue of indoctrination to my mind is saying this story happened that's why if you're white you are a de facto slave owner sure sure, sure. or something like that yeah, yeah, there's yeah, nothing yeah. you can do about it to 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 be something other than that the, the part that saddens me about the whole children education issue is that we're at this point where there's so much overgeneralization there's yeah. so much political debate about about what should be taught or not. And frankly, I do not believe that children's welfare is nowhere in that conversation. Yeah, I would agree with that too. And do I you think, think that's it's, a massive problem. But do you think it's made better or worse by things like 
um, McAuliffe saying what he said or Merrick Garland, the, the DA, issuing a memo about the FBI paying special attention to parent-teacher conferences because there's you know, that there might be some domestic domestic terrorism that's happening at these school board meetings because of parents going and trying to express themselves. See, to me, those things almost um, harden the person who has that perspective to yeah. begin with. I, I would say the McAuliffe, for sure, he messed up. Like, you, there is just no good way to, to, to turn that comment like that. You can see the second he said it, someone like, yep, cut. cut. That's our ad. Yep. <laughs> Don't Bingo. say anything else. That's it, like, Perfect. Yeah. Say that, yeah. right? There's there's no redemption of it. The domestic terror one is an interesting one mm-hmm. because you've also, I'm sure, have seen some of the articles of some of the school board members saying they're getting their life threatened. Mm-hmm. Of course. There is violence that is happening in these in the many of these school board me- meetings. And at what point do you go from, I guess, where does it then start to bleed into domestic terror where you have these elected officials who are being threatened for their lives because of wanting to potentially even introduce something like like these stories of uncivil realities, people are not taking the time to even understand the nuance of these things, whether they're even historically accurate. My answer to when it becomes domestic terror would be when it's an organized group that is operating across state lines. In the absence of that, I would call that a issue that should be dealt with with local enforcement, local cops, local, local terror. <laughs> well, no. I mean, if somebody yeah. ends up going to a school board and being a jackass, like call the cops, get the guy arrested, throw him in jail and deal with him that way. But for the for the district for the um, attorney general mm-hmm. to issue and mobilize the FBI on yeah, a national yeah. Oh, level, yeah. that's the issue that I'm saying. When people get that headline, think, though, even though they don't understand all the nuance in it, because there is nuance, I think it hardens them. Yeah, I can see that. I, I just think that we are going to get to a point here very quickly where there will be a mass shooting and a school board meeting. Mm-hmm. Period. Like there is zero, and I'm not wishing for it. But you, that is coming, and it's coming super fast. Mm-hmm. Someone's going to go into the school board, very upset, yeah. and, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to take action against it. And I think that's what people are scared of. Well, and the big part of this is actually also tied to Virginia is what happened in Loudoun County with that man who, um, you know, a, a, a boy or man or somebody, but dressed as a woman, came into the girl's bathroom, raped a young girl, 14, 15-year-old oh, girl. Thing. And then the school board in Loudoun County said that that like they kind of swept it under the carpet, and then this young person did it again, raped somebody else, and the the father went into one of this these uh, school board meetings, and of course you can imagine he was just off the hook. I mean, just like yelling and screaming and whatever. Yeah. And he got tackled and taken down and beat up and the whole nine yards by the cops and got and like became a little bit of a flashpoint for a lot of these people to go like, wait a minute, this guy's daughter was raped. He's coming in to yell and complain about what he thinks is contributing to that. And he basically gets cuffed and stuffed. Like, right. it's, you're Instead right. Instead of dealing with the actual issue. Yeah, but I mean, to your point, I actually agree with you that but, I think but that. I, I, think it, I, I just think specifically tied to this issue around kids' yeah. education. Yeah. Like that on its own. It's such a, to your point, flashpoint that I do think that someone's going to do something, unfortunately. One other topic on this that I'd love to get your thoughts on, um, and then maybe we can move on to Courage or Cringe, is around the emergence of all, like, whatever you want to call it. Like we have alternative media. Now there's alternative education, right? So there's been, and there's been homeschooling and unschooling for a while. A lot of people know homeschooling. A lot of people don't know unschooling. Mm-hmm. And that's a phenomenon that you see ironically in very rich, mostly progressive areas where people just like keep their kids home from school and they, they, mm-hmm. they, they're educated another way. But now we're also seeing the rise of secondary or post-secondary, um, 
academies, universities, whatever, right, right, right. that are dedicated to this idea of this is going to be – it's like the parlor of schools, right? So there's one in, in, the, in the news this week in Austin that's actually uh, – one of the board of trustees is Barry Weiss, from the, formerly from the New York Times, mm-hmm. who had that whole issue where she basically wrote her letter and saying that we're no longer objective and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So what do you make? What do you make of that? Do you give that any? Like, do you think that stuff will stand the test of time, or do you think it's a little bit of a trend or a flash in the pan? I, I think it will. Uh, I think it will. It, it's it's probably going to be more of a growing movement than not. I would say, and I think part of it is for a number of reasons. There is definitely more division around the things that we collectively agree are true. I think that's part of the, that's one of one of the problem, right? Meaning that we have different v- views of the same truths in very many mm-hmm. cases, right? More divided than ever. I also think the pandemic, because of having some people be from home and technology playing a much better role to be able to share information in a, in mass in a mass manner, allow for now new ways to think about sharing information, education that make things much more scalable that before weren't as scalable. So I think you will see a rise of more of these kind of fringe movements or other movements. I also think because of everything going on, which we're talking about in education, you have a lot more parents that previously would have never considered taking a non-traditional approach for how to educate the children are not doing it. I'm one of them, mm-hmm. right? Like I told you, this, my, my, my daughter is doing this whole school year from home. Mm-hmm. And mine was related to the way that the, you know, I felt that the school was not dealing with things appropriately as it relates to the COVID protocol that we found at the very, very last minute. Mm-hmm. But we don't never even would have considered it in years prior. And part of the reason why we did it was like, well, now we, we kind of out of necessity how to do it of her being at home. We know how that works. Now there's a comfort level level that, that you we have, can do it. That you can do it that right. you wouldn't otherwise would even consider. So right. I, I don't necessarily think that this is gonna like, gonna go away anytime quickly. I think it'll be the opposite. I think it actually you'll, you'll see it as a growing movement. Mm-hmm. Do you view those universities in the same way that you have suspicion around like Truth Social that you actually don't believe it's a marketplace of free ideas? You think it's a it's a proxy for a conservative platform? Do you think that this is a proxy for a conservative school? Not uh, frankly, not necessarily. I think it all depends on the players, right? Uh, the reason why I'm very skeptical about True Social is because literally, who was driving the whole thing? Trump, and I just don't think there's anything about him that he's ever done that is now self-serving. So, and I don't necessarily put that same, um, uh, you know, motive. Wave, yeah, motive on everyone because I, even this person from the New York Times, right? Like, I, I just don't know enough about it to say that it is going to be pure conservative. Now, do I think I'm someone that is much more? Lena being about truth is going to be more maybe center right leaning probably. I would put the more maybe libertarian probably. camps. I, yeah, Barry Weiss think, is think, not a conservative, and I think libertarian camps yeah. in this day and age are more center right mm-hmm. than what maybe what they would be considered before. But I, but I don't necessarily think that is necessarily means that it's it's all about just pushing conservative ideology. Right. Yeah. It's more like Barry Weiss, like uh, what's his name, uh, Glenn Glenn Greenwald from The Intercept who's also a journalist. It's like people who have, yeah. who have made it, they're like, they get, they're he's like the one fired that, up. He's the one that broke the story with Snowden, right? Yeah, they're like fired up about being, yeah, yeah, yeah. playing the counter narrative. more the libertarian, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, even though I think both of those people might say that they're they're liberal. I don't know, but but they're not conservatives I, is what I mean. I mean, they're they're fairly liberal on a number of things, right? Um, right, so I wouldn't put them in a traditional conservative right. side. But yeah, so I think if folks, like, if folks like that are involved, I think it gives it a better shot of being... Really, more about being uh, about the truth yeah. and less necessarily about uh, 
be necessarily all about uh, conservative ideology. Yeah, I think that parents have to play a really pivotal and important role in the education of their kids. I think there's a right way to do that and a wrong way to do that. Right now, we're definitely seeing a mix of right and wrong. And, uh, you know, look, I hope that uh, cooler, cooler minds prevail, but I'm not sure. Yeah, and I think this whole idea about nuance, be more open to to having your kids learn more nuance um, ideas, I think is a, is a really important thing. And it's too bad that we're in a position because of, I think social plays such a big role that we tend to go into our echo chambers, right? They just want to hear what we want to hear. Yeah. That I think all of us are worse at hearing nuance that we probably were before. Yeah, well said. You want to play Courage or Cringe? On that depressing note, yes, Courage Let's or Cringe. Let's play. Let's play Courage or Cringe. Um, so, uh, first, Courage or Cringe. Petition calls for Travis Scott to be dropped from Coachella Festival lineup. Um, it's raging right now. It, it is, yeah. So, a petition on change.org that started this past Friday had already received hundreds of, sign- hundreds of signatures that urged Paul Tollett, uh, the co-founder of the Coachella Festival and promoter Golden, no- uh, Golden Voice, along with his parent company, AEG, to drop Scott from all of its festivals due to Scott's own negligence and sheer lack of compassion for human life. Yikes. Yeah, that's a strong accusation. But as as I'm sure a lot of people know by now, is this past Friday night, uh, there was a major tragedy at a Travis Scott concert in Houston where eight people died and another 300 people were injured. Of those that died, they were between the ages of 14 and 27. Super sad. Super, super sad. And there's a lot of people injured too. There's like 18 others that are injured. So Here to say 300 that were injured. Maybe the. Well, I'm sorry, in the hospital. In the hospital. Oh, in the hospital. Yeah, okay, yeah, gotcha, yeah. gotcha. Um, now, this was all part of his 2021 Astro World Festival at NRG Park in Houston. Have you ever been there? No, I never have. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, either have I. I just didn't know what the layout was. NRG, is that the where they play football? I mean, well, they don't have football anymore there in Houston. That. The oiler, what are you talking about? Oh, the Texans. The yeah. Texans. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, 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 sorry. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> you're like, what? Did you hear something? Like, yeah. Was there breaking news? I meant to the say show? they shouldn't have football oh, okay. in Houston, given the Texans' record uh, uh, and their and their quarterback controversies. But um, but no, Energy Park. I don't know. Is that the stadium? I have I no know. idea. I, I think it's it an is, open but... air thing for sure. So I don't know. But apparently, they had an estimated attendance of fifty thousand people. Now, part of the growing controversy is that there, since uh, since this happened, there's videos that have been posted on social media depicting some of the chaos in the crowd, right? Which all of this has now led to pretty widespread criticism of both Scott and the festival organizers for continuing the performance, even as spectators shouted for the concert to be stopped as lifeless bodies were being pulled from the throng. Have you seen any of those videos? Because I've seen the video of a young girl climbing the scaffolding of the cameraman. The cameraman's like shooting the thing mm-hmm. and she's there like hitting him, like going, you've got to stop the show. Another guy climbs on the guy. The guy's freaking out trying to get these kids off the scaffolding. They're not supposed to be there. But dude, does that dude keep filming? Like he does not stop for a second shooting that show. You know, um, I haven't watched any of the videos. I saw some of them come up on social, but it, it was it was too soon for me. Like I just didn't want to see that. Yeah, and I wouldn't watch the ones about these kids being killed. What I'm talking yeah, about yeah, is yeah. it was happening. No, no, I hear there, you. Yeah. But I saw some of the videos right away come up on social, and I just I just didn't have the stomach. Yeah, the stomach to see those. Yeah, I, I, it was just such a sad thing. Um, 
Also, apparently, by the way, Travis had been warned by authorities that they were concerned about the overcrowding of the festival, right? So this happened before the, the festival itself. And I confirmed it is the stadium where the Texans play. So it's it an is, NFL okay. stadium. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, now, to this, Travis Scott has offered to pay for all the funerals of the people that died and also said, I am absolutely devastated by what took place last night. My prayers go out to the families and all those impacted by what happened at Astroworld Festival. Um, so the question really is, how much blame you know should he get for this strategy? Well, the, the problem here is that his history, his personal history and reputation are a little bit complicated, right? So one, in 2015, he was arrested after encouraging fans to rush past security barriers and join him on stage at the Lollapalooza Festival in Chicago. Mm. Then two years later, in 2017, he was accused of inciting a riot at the Walmart Arkansas Music Pavilion in Rogers, Arkansas, after urging members of the crowd to rush the stage. In that case, several uh, police, uh, several people were injured, um, including a security guard and a police officer. Hmm. Then weeks later, a 23-year-old fan was partially paralyzed after allegedly being pushed from a third-story balcony Sheesh. during a performance by Scott in New York City. Now, his next performance was scheduled to be um, on November 13th at the day in, uh, called Day N Vegas Festival, which we saw that he's already pulled out from that. Yeah, that happened like hours ago. Yeah, it happened hours ago. So... You know, with here, right? So, courage or cringe? You know, should Travis Scott rightfully face consequences for his role in contributing to the deaths of some of his fans, or is this another example of cancel culture and try to take an artist's livelihood for a terrible accident? Yeah, I'm I'm courage on this one on the petition um, to to ask him to to be dropped from this, not as a way to partic- punish a particular event, but just to force a moment of kind of pause and a little bit of accountability. Especially give, I mean, you know, it's almost shades of what you just said. Like, I wasn't ready to watch the video. I don't have the stomach for it. Like, you need almost a mourning period. You, you know do. what I mean? Yeah. It's like I agree people with that. got killed. There's a bunch that are in the hospital. This was a total wreck, a disaster. And for you to go on with just the next tour, I don't know, man. It, it, to me, it just says, like, if your whole universe is about catering to fans and connecting with people that love you and follow you, unless you're going to make that a performance that is going to be a, you know, like a, a, the proceeds of which go to these families or something like that, but just to like carry on and keep doing your thing, it seems very insensitive to me. Right. And so I'm okay with the, with the, with the petition. I, I, I don't want to overly rely on his past stuff because I don't know enough about it. I don't know enough about him to say, but it doesn't help my perspective that this is yeah. something that's come up a number of times in the past. It's come up that it's kind of a culture thing with him. It's like a cold falling that he has where they really like to rage his fans. Um, and the idea there is to what degree that has he been contributing to this, something that was bound to happen, right? But I would say even if you put all that aside of this being bound to happen or him being in any way personally liable for not stopping the concert. By the way, there is video film. There was I, I saw this earlier today. Where they showed him, Travis Scott, in a concert, stopping the concert and saying, hey, like, back up, let them get up. And he's telling people, like, he himself has done it in the past where people just got too crazy. So it, it is in him to do yeah. that. So it's not like he's a 100% irresponsible person, no matter the scenario. Yeah, and I don't. But, yeah. but I agree with you. And this is why, remember, we talked about um, with Fortnite pulling down his, um, like, his. His little emoji deal. His, yeah. Right, right, of not using it. Um, during this time, I, I do think that regardless of how much blame he has, a pa- a hard pause where he should step away, and just uh, out of respect for the for the for these families that were devastated by these kids, literally kids dying in his concert, I think is the right thing to do. And frankly, it shouldn't take a, a petition, petition for him to do it. He should be like, "Hey guys, you know what? For the next six months, I'm gonna pause right now." 
and I need to to take a step back, and I'm gonna do whatever I can. I think the fact the fact that it offered up to to pay you for know, the funerals that's that's nice. I, I I hope he does more than that. Um, but but really taking a pause, I think will will say a lot about him and what he feels about his fans, and it, it is a little bit. And look, the reality is this petition started really quickly. I mean, this all happened like immediately. It happened. People put in a petition right away. So to be fair to him, is I had a lot of time to react to the fact that this thing was even put there. Mm-hmm. But I do think that he should be pulling out, and I hope he does that. I hope he pauses hard uh, from all these touring and just uses as a moment of levity to just think about you know these families that were impacted. So your courage too, then I'm courage as well. Yeah. Do you do you, would it change it for you if he said, "Hey, my next six shows are going to be charitable, and everything that we raise from them is going to be whatever used for the families or." I'm going to use it for, I don't know, like make it up, but like turn into a moment. Would that change it for you or would you still want him to take a pause? I think he should take a pause in all scenarios. Yeah, I do too, but I'm just wondering. Because um, he's also wealthy enough and or he can get AEG or any of these guys say, hey, I'm not going to perform, but we're going to. I'm sure there's some clause in the contract. I'm I'm sure. I'm sure Travis Scott asked people at Coachella, hey, I don't want to perform, but can I ask that? Instead of my instead of the fee that I would have received, that that gets given to this charity that's going to be focused on kids in Houston, I'm sure they would do it. Coachella and in a heartbeat they would do it. Yeah, because they also don't want to you know have the bad press of of being the ones that didn't want to support this this cause out of this tragedy, mm-hmm. right? But I think him taking a pause, I think would, would mean a lot to his fans. Fair enough. The, the the last point I'll make on this is ironically, I don't know Travis Scott and I know some of his music is big stuff, but nothing else beyond that. But I have attended a concert and it was the one on Fortnite with my kids. I actually was there and like the famous one where he did his concert in Fortnite. Um, oh, okay. Two years ago, I think it was. And so I did sit with them in their room and we watched that performance in Fortnite. So I, I, have, was, been, I um, have been to one. And it was pretty ragey even then because like all the avatars are trying to kill each other as they're watching the show. Uh, so Yeah, on that one, I was uh, uh, actually hanging out with our, our good friend Marcos Klein mm-hmm. and his son was watching it. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> uh, watching the concert in Fortnite. So I remember that day that happened. Um, yep. All right. So our next Courage of Cringe, State Farm backs Aaron Rodgers' personal point of view and encourage, encourages vaccination after QB controversy. So, yeah, this has been obviously a pretty hot topic with Aaron Rodgers, right? So at this point, I'm sure most people have, have heard, right, of the controversy. Um, and I guess for those that don't, we'll do a very quick ver- version of this, right? So back at the beginning of the season when the NFL had rolled out its COVID protocols, you know, many players were being asked about their vaccination status. Um, now, when Aaron was specifically asked about whether or not he was vaccinated, he responded, yeah, I've been immunized. Um, sort of response to a different question. Right. Of course, everyone assumed that he was like vaccinated. Yeah. Well, it turns out he wasn't, right? Mm-hmm. So now he's gotten COVID. And when you look back at his behavior, it was obvious that he's he hasn't always been following all the NFL protocols. Because he's been basically doing this stuff for vaccinated players is what you mean. Like he's been well, participating as a vaccinated player when he wasn't vaccinated. Not everything, right? So according to him, he says that anything inside of the facilities where mm-hmm. it's just with the players, he was following all the rules that uh, the NFL protocol rules, right? Wearing masks and for working out, for travel. But really, when it comes to anything more public-facing, as far as the public knew, no one realized that he was unvaccinated because he was operating like a vaccinated player. Right. So when it will come to media interviews, not wearing a mask, not doing anything on Zoom. Um, and at least, you know, for him, he described it directly as, you know, basically not following the ones that he didn't think made sense, right? <laughs> 
So now there's been major fallout, right? So as many have called him out for lying and being selfish, as well as the league and the team for allowing the star player to make up his own rules. And right. it's gotten more real since Sunday because he actually didn't play on Sunday. Well, which he didn't play, and then Jordan Love, Jordan Love. got killed. killed. Got yeah. killed. And also, it got way more real because he did a 45-minute interview in the Pat McAfee show uh, where he went out and basically said why he didn't do it. And the reaction on that uh, was pretty terrible across the board. Mm -hmm. I think uh, um, he got blasted by, seemed like everyone, including a lot of the NFL legends, right? We talked about Terry Bradshaw, um, Howie Long. That whole crew was just on him. And outside of football, too, Kareem. Yeah, I mean, everyone was just... Although Kareem's got something to say about everything. Yeah, that's true. Um, uh, which he, he even came back today on the on the Pat McAfee show, and at least it sounded a little bit more contrite, although he's still kind of sticking to his guns. But at least there's going to be some acknowledgement that he may have misled people, which he didn't acknowledge at all the first time around, right? Yeah, he clearly misled people. He, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, pretty soon after all these news came out, you know, pre. Uh, I want to ask a dumb question though. Is there a reason why you couldn't, as a player, just answer it? I don't want to answer that question. Like, is that not okay for them to do on any level? Somebody yeah, says, they could have answered that. Sure, sure. A lot of people did. It's a personal choice. People had that. And that kind of goes into, like, what is the motive right here, right, for for um, for Aaron Rodgers? And and it, it's hard to argue that this, his motive wasn't one-driven, that he just didn't want to deal with the heat that he may get. That's definitely – and that seems like it's really on brand because – and look, I got to be honest with you. I'm not an Aaron Rodgers fan. Never have been. I, I, I just – there's something – I find him kind of flippant, a little arrogant – like I just, I just have never been a fan. It's not like I don't like the Green did, Bay Packers. Did you Packers. watch that interview with with Pat McAfee? I haven't yet. No. He, I mean, arrogant is probably a very good way to describe just, his position. I just he come not, out. He came out very arrogant. Yeah. And I think I do think he cares what people think about him. Uh, uh, oh yeah, he does and, for sure. And the reason he came back out and I think addressing it, I do think it's specifically because the backlash. The backlash was not what, what he was probably expecting. Yeah, he was probably expecting a, a round of applause. But I think if anybody, if people are upset with him, they're probably equal parts or maybe more upset with his um, lack of, uh, of, uh, of 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 candor, his lack of honesty about yeah. the issue. And that is the issue. Than, yeah. You know, which for me is... Because he's not the first or last player that is not vaccinated. Right. It's not really that. Right. And even his comments, that first one, like, he talks down and makes a reference to um, uh, Kyrie Irving. He's like, I'm not an anti-vaxxer. I'm not a flat earther. I'm like, dude, why you got to throw Kyrie Irving? At least he has the, you know what, to say it. Yeah. You did it. That's true. Right? You could say he's crazy. And I'm the one that, like, yeah, you know... I think, I think you're 100% him. right. I think he was trying to avoid this by giving kind of a half answer that would probably satisfy people who are wondering and be able to let him do his thing. And I think right. that that's what's wrong. And that's what's caught him in the end right now. You know, and then uh, as it relates to sponsor, right? So Previa Health uh, dropped him as a sportsperson pretty quickly. But then the big one right, was going to be State Farm because, you know, as as uh, I think you know, Aaron Rodgers has been recently been a, a key part of their national campaign for years for now. Years, across yeah. everything, linear, digital print, across the board, right? We actually know the guy who started that at State Farm. You probably won't remember him, but but you've met him. Oh, really? Yeah, um, Ed Gold. Yeah, he doesn't work there anymore, but he's oh, okay. the guy who ran all the sponsorships there for a long time. Well, you know, <clears> State <throat> Farm now has now come out, and they decided to stick it out with Aaron right now. They said that they supported Aaron Rodgers' personal point of view, despite disagreeing with the statements on the Pat McAfee show last week. Now, in a statement, they said, Aaron Rodgers has been a great ambassador for our company for much of the past decade. We don't support some of the statements he has made, but we respect his right to have his own personal point of view. We recognize our customers, employees, agents, and brand ambassadors come from all walks of life. 
with differing viewpoints on many issues. Our mission at State Farm is to support safer, stronger communities. To that, we, to that end, we encourage vaccination, but respect everyone's right to make a choice based on their personal circumstances. So courage or cringe, Charlie, State Farm supporting freedom of choice or looking the other way on stars, lying and preferential treatment to avoid upsetting the right? Yeah, it's kind of tricky, right? Because first of all, let's say I'm cringe on Aaron Rodgers, like in what and the way that I understand he's behaved about this because he was not very he wasn't honest about what happened. Right. And if he would have been, he would have had the courage of his convictions like Kyrie and knowing sure. I'm going to catch hell, but I'm going to come out and say it. Oh, it's, this is so awesome. Like in two weeks later, Kyrie's not like the like the example to use. Like he was like... <laughs> I didn't have a beef with Kyrie. See you're the, saying, you're the one who it, had a beef with Kyrie. But it's kind of funny, yeah, right? We yeah. go from like, oh, that guy, whatever. And now we're like, see, be like Kyrie. I, At least I, be honest. Like, like you were the one with the flat earth thing. Yeah, so yeah. for me, he was he was all, he was was all always good. But anyway, right, right. Um, so I don't like that. If I, if I read this statement for State Farm, though, ultimately on this, I'm a courage because I agree with every single stitch of what they wrote. Now, you can quibble with me about whether or not their statement should have included not the fact that he has a different point of view on the vaccine, but that his uh, you not agreeing with some of his statements has to include the fact that he wasn't being honest, right? Right. So it's not like an opinion that, he, that, 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 that he's disagreeing with, right? That's the point, so, yeah. So, like— you know, just kind of like very strategically forget to mention that part of it. No, but I'm just saying that like <laughs> from you, State Farm, I mean, like oh, not, from State Farm, yeah yeah, 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 yeah. But if I read this statement, look, I agree with State Farm that um, they recognize our customers, employees, agents, brand ambassadors come from all walks of life. I think we need more of those kind of recognitions from a lot of different in a lot of different sectors, and that they encourage vaccinations but respect everyone's right to make a choice based on their personal circumstances. That's basically my position. So I, I got to give them a courage. Now, here's the thing. If it is, you know, revealed, which it may very well be, or he admits like, hey, you know what? I misled and I really lied and that's what this is about. Then you have to ask yourself the question, is State Farm going to own up to that or does this cover it too? Because the way that this statement is written, it just, it kind of makes it sound like uh, Roger's position on vaccines, mm-hmm. but it doesn't, it that's doesn't, what it does, yeah. right? It doesn't speak to Roger's behavior ethically or morally about mm-hmm. being dishonest right so or as a leader or right. as a exactly. or as a leader but based on what we know right now like what we know right now and this statement i've got to go i've got to net out on courage on it because i agree with it and 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 you know i can't yeah. prove it because i don't care enough about it to try but i think aaron Rodgers, from what i've read was dishonest and i think that you know he's gonna have to make he's gonna have to account for that somewhere down the line yeah, and I think that that's the reason why I'm very cringe on the State Farm yeah. comment, right? Look, and I could say, even if they decide to, they don't, I'm not saying they need to drop them. I'm, I'm actually not for the whole cancel culture thing, right? Like, if they want to keep them, that's fine. But at least acknowledge that, right? It's not just that you disagree with some of the viewpoints. Like, be more specific because you also are an insurance company. Shouldn't an insurance company be for transparency for being uh for being ethical about how they operate not be associated with someone that is being unethical that is that is misleading the 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 public like we talk a lot of times about brand values how they associate with spokespeople Mm -hmm. should those values be associated with this insurance company probably not i don't think that's the kind of value that they should want to associate now they may decide that we still want to do it and that's fine, but I think the not talking about it at all is what I have issue with. And they're basically reframing the conversation as something else, which is about him having a different opinion about vaccination, which is not what we're talking about. Do you think that's because they had to make a statement and they don't have all the facts so they came out with the best they have? Or do you think that they're purposely skirting the issue of it's not that you disagree with a different point of view. 
it's that you're giving them a pass for being dishonest. Like, you think that it's because just they had to do something quickly and they didn't have time to look at it, or I, they just... I think they see the the upside and downside. They see a significantly larger downside, and they walk away from them because I do think they're trying to not upset the right. Because mm. whether Aaron Rodgers wants to admit or not, he said, like, I don't want to be associated with the woke mob or the... I forgot what he called it, right? Mm-hmm. Like the cancel culture mob or the other... Mm-hmm. The whatever. The conservative side. Like, I don't want to be associated with either one of them. The reality is he is now on one side. Mm-hmm. That people are seeing him now as also part of it, uh, representing the 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 right to some extent, mm-hmm. right? And I think that if they were to end a relationship, someone like State Farm, I think the reality with the other with the other brand, which is, uh, I don't know if it's like a... a uh, it's like a health system. A health, like, that one is just tough to, to like, stick with it, knowing that he lied about it. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> yeah, I guess you could, but see what I'm saying? Like, that's a yeah. harder one for yeah, them yeah, to, yeah, like, yeah, stick yeah, with yeah. it. Yeah. But if you stay farm, I think there it's entirely about trying to avoid the issue enough, staying in the way to kind of appease both sides, but avoiding the real issue here. And I think mostly because they don't want to, they don't want to uh, cause any conflict with the right um, if, they, if they were to drop them. Uh, the only thing I would push back on you with that is that I think their statement as is pushes back on an existing narrative that makes it very risky. The fact that they said we encourage vaccinations but respect someone's right to make a decision based on their personal circumstances already gets them into a crap ton of trouble with a bunch of different people, even without talking about Aaron The, the reason why I don't think that's the case, Because there's people Charlie. who don't believe that you should yeah, even have that choice. Yeah, but there, there's... But I don't think they worry about those people. Look, if that statement, we encourage vaccinations, but respect everyone's right to make a choice based on their... That is Governor DeSantis' position. Mm-hmm. Think about, like, the new face of the Republican Party. That is, like, almost word for word his position. It's a very right position. Mm-hmm. So I don't see it as – you may offend the ones that are completely anti-vaccine who you shouldn't even be encouraging vaccination. No, I, no, no. But I mean it the other way. I mean that you've isolated you know, a good part of the left already because on the left, a lot of the per- per- pervading position is you shouldn't have a choice oh, I for see. vaccines. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah and, and I think you're, you're – once again, it's like, a, it's like a risk-reward kind of scenario that, you, that they're doing here. And I think they're more concerned in this specific case, at least it looks like based on their decision and the wording here – of keeping the folks that are more on the right, more basically appeasing them a little bit more than those that and would be the far risk left. of losing the people on the left. At least the, the ones that are in the far left. I think we're talking about fars in this case, right? Yeah. Probably not anyone in the middle. Yeah. Well, all, a different topic, but, you know, vaccine mandates would fall into that category too, right? Sure. People's like, hey, you know what? We don't care what your point of view is. You're getting vaccinated. I mean, the thing that I don't know, I wonder if State Farm is, as a company has already put in a, a vaccine mandate for all their employees. It's possible. Probably. It doesn't matter anyway. If uh, Biden's OSHA thing goes through, they'd have to. They have more yeah, than they have to. Employees. Yeah, I just know if they proactively did that before that. Yeah, so I don't no, know. No, maybe. But, all right. Uh, yeah. See, I'm two courages in a row. I'm feeling, I'm feeling optimistic. I'm sorry, one courage in a row. There you go. I was um, giving you my preemptive for the next one, but go ahead. Uh, okay. Uh, <laughs> I was I, telegraphing. Courage or cringe? MIT alums slam university for caving to wokeness, condemning firing of priest for George Floyd letter. Um, so this is this story is a little bit dated, but there, it actually just came up because of this op-ed that these two uh, MIT alums, Tom Hafer and Henry and Henry Miller, wrote, where they basically are are slamming uh, MIT for caving to wokeness. Which included both pushing out this Catholic campus chaplain and then recently disinviting an University of Chicago geophysicist from speaking on campus. Mm. 
Now, in terms of who these people are, well, Tom Hafer apparently has been previously developed previously developed systems for neutralizing rockets and drones. And then Henry Miller is a physician and molecular biologist and was a founding director of the FDA's Office of Biotechnology. Slackers, basically. Slackers, who apparently they both went together to school there. Um, mm-hmm. Now, in the piece, they said a lot, right? But they said, look, the current MIT administration has caved repeatedly to the demands of wokeness, treating the students unfairly, compromising the quality of the staff, and damaging the institution and academic freedom at large. Mm-hmm. Now, the first issue was about um, how the school pushed out this Catholic campus chaplain, right? Mm-hmm. To that, they said, in the early days of George Floyd protests, before the details of Floyd's death were clear, Father Daniel Maloney sent a letter outlining his thoughts on the event to the university's Catholic community. It was a sincere examination of conscience from a person whose job it was to examine conscience. Yet it prompted his immediate dismissal. Hmm. I, didn't, I never caught wind of this when it happened. No, never. Me, yeah, I mean, either. Uh, this M- was back then? This was 2020 when this, this one happened? Yeah, yeah. I'm so super surprised I didn't hear about this. Uh, MIT's leadership apparently took uh, took umbrage mm-hmm. at his statement of these uh, simple facts. That one, that George Floyd had not lived a virtuous life. This is, this is not the words of, of this chaplain who said that in his letter. Mm-hmm. Based on multiple criminal convictions. And that most people in the country have framed Floyd's death as an act of racism which uh, I don't think we know that. So basically, they didn't know at the time yet whether or not it was mm-hmm. based on that, right? Now, Maloney did not present these statements as justification for Floyd's death. To the contrary, his letter begins, George Floyd was killed by a police officer. It shouldn't have been. But MIT found the letter intolerable and fired the chaplain. Um, now, they go out to clarify, they themselves are not Catholics, these two ex-alums, right? Uh, but believe fairness uh, that transcends religion, hmm. right? Now, Maloney, this chaplain, was asked to step down by the Archdiocese on June 9th after outrage over the message. The Archdiocese added that Maloney's comments were wrong, and by his resignation, he accepts the hurt they have caused. Hmm. By the way, this is like one really quick question for you, Charlie. Sure. In this case, they're accusing MIT of wokeness, of getting of pushing out this, this, this chaplain, mm-hmm. but it was the Archdiocese who seems to have uh, asked this, this uh, uh, chaplain to step down. Mm-hmm. Are we? Are they accusing? Shouldn't they be accusing the archdiocese in this case of pushing out? If this? that's if that's the only where if that's the only place where that came from, then yes. It seems though in the story that it suggests that MIT fired the chaplain and the archdiocese asked him to step down. It could be, and I don't know if this is true. I'd have to research it. It could be that the university contacted the diocese and said, we're not comfortable with this guy here anymore. And then the archdiocese took a step yeah. to ask for his resignation. I mean, that could be likely, but the archdiocese, not only did they do it, they also then like said made that, public statements about it. That his statements were wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and it, I, I, I want to read that, but anytime an archdiocese is involved, you know that a particular bishop asked a particular bi- uh, priest to step aside, and that's how those things work. And you have to, you know, you have to be obedient, you know, when, when right, that right, stuff right. goes down. So I, I don't know the sequence of events, but it is it is meaningful that the archdiocese said what they said about yeah, this statement. I, I think so too. Mm-hmm. Um, then the the letter they focused on the school's this, uh, disinviting an associate professor. Now they said that the the that uh, University of Chicago professor Dorian Abbott had committed the mortal sin of arguing that. The implementation of diversity, equity, and inclusion (DNI) initiatives on college campuses violates the ethical and legal principle of equal treatment, and treats person as merely means to an end, giving primacy to a statistic over the individuality of a human being. Hmm. So instead of championing Abbott's presentation on Earth's climate and identification of planets in the other solar systems, MIT pandered to Twitter mob and canceled the lecture. 
right? Some of it, so their other complaints also were about MIT rolling out diversity training, which they said implied that straight white males are, the, are at the intersection of all oppressive behaviors. Um, so, yeah, and they kind of went on from there, right? Sure. So, Courage or Cringe, MIT alum slam university's wokeness or more rise of the counter-council movement. Do you know anything about the the uh, second incident, this uh, Adorian Abbott? Anything else beyond the? I mean, these apparently statements? he was. Yeah, he was. Uh, in terms of the statements that people were complaining about, these were that's, that was the one that they was that was mentioned. What he was asked to speak to had nothing to do with DNI. Like he was there as right. a, as a professor on climate stuff. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So he was there was I guess some pressure that uh, MIT caved to. At least it sounds like in that case. Um, but I don't believe that he was speaking on the on the issue of DNI. Yeah, look, I think on these alumni taking the step to uh, to publish this complaint or letter, or whatever, against MIT, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to net out on courage on this, um, and just to to, to kind of take the individual sort of uh, things that they cite. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of weight for it from it from my perspective on the first one that the archdiocese asked this priest to resign from his chaplaincy. That's a big deal when that happens. And with without having read the entire letter, I can probably imagine that there were things in it beyond these couple things that this group chooses to cite. Right. That probably were at the very least a very poor pastoral moment to do. You and I talked about this, and maybe a lot of people listening to the show don't don't kind of get the significance of this. But the, the idea of being pastoral is a lot about timing. It's a lot about like, you can recognize a bad behavior, but recognize the moment that you're in and what that individual needs at that time before you issue their kind of corrective action, right? The right stuff, the right thing in the truth will always be the right thing in the truth. Mm-hmm. But how you deal with an individual in a given right. situation may mean that for a time you focus on one thing rather than you know, putting this fact in their face. And that's called being pastoral. And this is a very non-theological definition of what it is, but that's basically what it means. It means it, it means having good taste. It but means being in the why, moment. To me, that statement of that George Floyd had not lived a virtuous life, mm-hmm. I, I think of especially in the Catholic context where Catholics believe that all people are born with sin. Mm-hmm. I find it like really weird thing to say. It's like, it, I almost put it in the same kind of category of like, I'm not trying to be racist, but mm-hmm. and then whatever comes next is gonna be kind of racist. Yeah, like yeah. when you say it, I'm not saying justifies, but you know he wasn't very virtuous. Yeah. Well, in the in the classic definition of Catholic of Catholicism, who is virtuous? Yeah. Yeah. No, exactly. And this is the same again. You and I talked about this in last week's show, right? It's it's you have to be ready to go and kiss the feet of death row inmates who have murdered a family of right. five. Like that's. That's true Christianity. Now, in the process of doing it, are you supposed to say killing people's right? No. You're sure. supposed to do both. You're supposed to kiss their feet and say you shouldn't kill people. That's the hard part about, right, about right, doing right, this. Right. So I put a lot of weight in that letter but, but uh, or, or in the diocese action, but I'm focusing on the letter that these guys wrote and citing that as an example. Then the other thing with this other guy, with the scientist, who I don't know anything about, but based on what he said, right— Look, there are people who have very legitimate concerns about how a lot of these, you know, what seems like in this case, maybe truly CRT, right? This, If it's true that this idea of straight white males are at the, at the intersection of all oppressive behaviors, 
that doesn't necessarily open up a dialogue with anybody. That just basically casts, you know, people into a group that they're irredeemable from. And I don't agree with that. And if that's really, truly what's happening, I don't think that that is. By that's, way, and mm-hmm. that, but that statement is their interpretation of what the diversity training is implying. It is not saying that's what diversity training well, is. Well, but telling. in the article, it's quotes from something. So they're, they're quoting a quote, or maybe they're taking it out of context, but there is a quote. That, 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 that is they're... their quote of them saying that. Okay. So well, they're, yeah, meaning like they're saying that the diversity training of MIT is implying that straight white males are at the intersection of all oppressive behaviors. That's their quote of their, their right. interpretation of what the diversity But even is. outside of this issue, so I can tell you because I've read some of this stuff, there's definitely a lot of this. Look, if you're white, you're just screwed because you are, you know, you're kind of in the oppressive camp and just deal with it. Like there's a lot of that at the very least suggested in other places explicitly stated. So I, I believe that that could be a play there. At the end of the day, what I'm doing courage on is their right to voice their opinion about what the school is doing that they went to, mm-hmm. that they're probably financially supporting like a lot of alumni do. And they've got, you know, a beef with the school and they're making sure. it public and they're citing these as examples as to why they're acting now. So for that, you know, and given their uh, supporting their right to to uh, to their opinion and to complain to their alma mater, I'm, I'm a courage on it, even though if, even if I may not agree with everything that they did or, yeah. or said. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, <clears throat> for me, I'm, I'm more courage than courage. Um, I guess I looked at it differently because it, if it's also simply them express having the ability to express their opinion about this, sure. That's always, that's, that's, to me, that's always going to be courage, right? But looking at the context uh, or content of what they shared, that first one on the on the on the chaplain, you know, I really got hung up on that phrasing that was used by by this chaplain, which is maybe just just terrible use of words. But the moment you're using that as a uh, as a gauge to basically say, well, there's somewhat merits or you can kind of see how this person ends up getting mm-hmm. killed or arrested because they're not entirely virtuous like well based on that standard who is virtuous right so i could see and then, and then the other part of where we talked about which is the fact that it was the archdiocese who told them to step down even if they were asked by mit to do it yeah. my guess if they were complete agreement they wouldn't a wouldn't have do it or b if they did do it it'd probably be very quietly wouldn't say anything about it you know yeah. just reassign to something chaplaincies else. are kind of tricky things though because generally chaplaincies you're really trying to service the person who the chaplain is at. So if, sure. if the school, y- y- this could even be one of those where like the diocese caught wind of the drama and called the school and said, hey, do you guys want us to kind of yeah. pull this guy? And they probably, oh, okay, sure. Yeah. So, but is the, is the resignation they didn't, and, by the, way, this, and the comments, right? right? But just just to be clear, just to make the point, it's not that the guy resigned being a priest, just to be clear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He yeah. just resigned his chaplaincy there at Got that it. Yeah, school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. no, no, I, I understand yeah. that. Yeah. I think his comments kind of make, make it where is the, the archdiocese um, seems to at minimum agree or believe there was something they said was wrong. And therefore, when I look at that, I think that second one to me is much more interesting. I'm much more in their camp, especially with the first guy. Because look, whether I agree with him, and if I look at what he's saying, I probably don't agree with him more than likely with this uh, Professor Dorian Abbott. But I don't think that him having a position where he questions the effectiveness of DEI in general on a college campus shouldn't mean that he can't have a say on the areas of expertise that he actually is an expert in. Because what I would venture to say is you may be a professor, it does not make you an expert in, in diversity, equity, and inclusion. As a matter of fact, I, won't, I don't take much weight other than you being in the university system for a long time in terms of being someone that is an expert on this issue. Therefore, just like if I have talk about any other issue that I'm not an expert in, yeah, I may disagree with the people, but it doesn't mean that I have no basis to speak on things that I am an expert on. So I think him getting removed from speaking in school, I don't agree with that. 
especially with this kind of position. So I'm more in their camp in that second one. I just don't see the weight of it is is put you over on cringe. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. and the fact that they're not going at all against the archdiocese, then well then do that. Then call out the archdiocese as well as well. Sure. Don't just call out MIT for being the one that pushed this guy out. Then call the people that actually reassigned this person. And because they don't do that, then that's why I ended up going on. No, those are fair points. Those are fair points. And it would be interesting to actually read the full letter because I, I the, the letter I'm trying from to the find priest. it. I couldn't find it. Yeah, no, I never even heard of it. And like I'm pretty plugged into Catholic stuff, as you can imagine. So yeah. I, I never heard of that one at all. But uh, interesting. So I'm all three courages. I don't think I've ever done that. So there you go. Courage, courage, and more courage. I think you're all cringe. Was I all cringe? No, no. The first one was courage, too. I was yeah, courage, courage in the first, one, the first yeah. one. Courage, cringe, cringe, yeah. So I will do the—you you added some variety. Otherwise, it would have been a boring show. There you <laughs> exactly. go. Very good. Um, anything else? No, no. All right. Well, good show, Jesus. Um, keep encouraging everybody to subscribe. In our new home at Revolver Podcast, so if you're listening to the show for the first time, thank you for stopping by. Keep listening. <clears throat> go back and listen to old shows, too get more acquainted with what we're up to please share the show with a friend we'll see you again next time on tdr if you enjoyed this episode of the diversity remix please remember first of all to subscribe and help us to spread the word Tell your friends, family, co-workers, and give us a five-star review. We're available on Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else you get your listening fix. And lastly, please remember to stop by blackbrown.us, the creator of this podcast, and take a look at our work and our approach at the intersection of diversity and business. The Diversity Remix is produced by Leo Gomez. The Diversity Remix is a production of Black Brown. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts.